Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by the historian and broadcaster Dan Snow, who you might know best from his hugely successful podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit. Dan's adventures started at a very young age as he traveled the world with his journalist parents. His dad is a very well-known BBC TV journalist, Peter Snow. And Dan has followed in their footsteps. He's also a mainstay on our TV screens, often presenting shows linked to his love of history. And that in turn has involved a great deal of travel to some fascinating and far-flung locations from Timbuktu and Zanzibar to Hawaii and St. Helena in the South Atlantic Ocean. So it might come as no surprise then that this is a long haul episode. You get a bit more this week because Dan has traveled to so many interesting places. I just... I wanted you to hear about all of them. So let's get to it. Here's Dan Snow. Dan Snow, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Very good. I'm really excited. I love this podcast. Well done for everything you've done. And um, Thank you. Well, like everybody, love traveling. And, and uh, so it's great to hear all the, all the other things, advice that your guests have got. And travel is really a big feature in your life, right? It is, yeah. I mean, the... Yeah, it is. And what's been joyful about what I do is you get to travel, but you get to have purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of, I'm not a huge fan of travel journalism and even some travel writing because it's that kind of slightly aimless wandering around I find a bit difficult. And Mm -hmm. I'm so blessed that when I go somewhere, I've got like a really, like family holidays I find very odd because... When I start traveling with my wife and kids, I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yes. oh, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be relaxing, just spending time with the kids. Okay, fine. Um, but when I go to a country, you land and you're there to see Petra or the Terracotta Warriors. So you're, you're moving through with purpose. You're looking at the stuff. You love, oh, wow, amazing. Just checking this out, checking that out, eating the cuisine. But there's a real sense of mission. And, and you get there, you get set up, you get there at dawn, you film the volcano, you film the historical ruin, you meet the key veteran of the Second World War, and then you get out. And so it is travel, but it's really it has this wonderful intellectual kind of narrative, like driving force that goes through it. It's in- interesting how so much history is the kind of formative basis for so much of travel, really. Yes. Well, actually, you're right. So, and uh, people always, I spend most of my life like justifying why I'm a history geek and people thinking it's weird. Uh, And, but of course it's actually not when you delve into it. Like, why do people go where they go? And we know that, we know, for example, that Asian uh, uh, visitors coming to Europe are here. Number one, apparently, is is, uh, kind of the the shopping and, and kind of, luxury accommodation experience but number two is is apparently history and heritage right mm-hmm. they want to see french chateau they want to see versailles they want to see tower of london they want to see big ben they want to see you know the the, the beautiful you know german uh, perfect alpine villages in bavaria and switzerland and stuff so of course we're all that's why we all go to places we all you know if you think people are going to venice they might not be engaging with the historical narrative and like reading books about venice but why do they want to go to venice they want to be surrounded by that the fabric of history right mm-hmm. so so you're absolutely right we want we do go to and people go to amsterdam well oh, i love going to amsterdam well they're going to amsterdam it's not an accident they're going to one of the most beautiful and historic places in the world absolutely. right absolutely it's the architecture yeah, it's the, and the vibe and the exactly and and the extraordinary and the canals and the canals mm. so let's start at the very beginning first of all with your travels and that is chapter one which is your earliest childhood travel memory 
Well, I think it's a it's an inside UK memory. This one. Oh well, it's, I don't know. I th- probably my earliest memory is driving up to my family in North Wales. My mum was born in North Wales, and her family, mm-hmm. many of her cousins, things still live there in the hills. Sheep farmers up in North Wales. What's and it I, like there, topographically? Well, it's Snowdonia, so it's yeah. big, big. Uh, well, I say if you're listening to this abroad, everyone, they're not big mountains, but in, in, in <laughs> England, Wales, we would consider them big mountains. They're yeah. big hills, big some mountains. Um, wild landscapes, no trees, not very few trees, grazed, lots of sheep, rock extrusions, patches of grass, the sea down on the coast, surrounded on three sides, not only by the sea. So, uh, and we'd got, and we'd drive up there, and back back in the day, you know, you're in a, you were in the boot of the car, obviously, you know, child's used. So you're in a boot, I'm in the boot of the car with my sisters, other sisters and brothers in the back seat listening to a radio cassette or something and uh, I'm sort of being asleep and waking up and still on the road and driving over these little winding roads and then getting there and it was like 10 degrees colder than where you'd left from. In the middle, it was like a day's worth of travel to get there. And it always now, to the minute, this day seems like the most remote place on earth um, and it's actually very easy to get there nowadays. But uh, And so that kind of sense of travel and leaving somewhere comfortable and arriving somewhere completely different is something that stayed with me forever. And did you enjoy it or was it kind of a bit of a schlep? No, I, I, well, I don't remember enjoying... People always say to me, did you enjoy all these weird things with your parents? Because did, we did loads of adventures and travels to all sorts of weird parts of the world. And I was I, going to ask, so you're, both your parents are journalists, yeah. so was travelling more a feature in your childhood than perhaps like the average person? Oh, yeah, we did lots of travel. We didn't really go on holidays like normal. We, our dream was to go to a beach and meet other children and play with them, and, and that never happened. And to this day, I, I see... Sometimes I have done that with my kids, and I see them having a very normal... Like, enrolling them in the day club you know on the the beach thing kids club and they play football and I look at them going I that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen what are they doing (laughs) I've never had that experience so they were both journalists so we went we used to go to Northern Ireland a lot you know there was during the troubles we went to the Middle East during the uh, pretty hot phase of the um, Intifada. I mean, we just did lots of stuff. <laughs> so, and I weirdly don't remember. Everyone said, oh, you must have been amazing. That's why you became a sort of lover of history. And I go, I don't think I particularly enjoy I just was like kids. I don't think my kids enjoy the place I take. So they just do it. They just kind of... And you just rolled along with it. You just roll with it. And you, know, you kind of remember the weird... You infuriate my dad by... The highlight would be like playing with the plastic dinosaur in the in the, the, the <laughs> yeah. place at the airport, and then you come back from holiday, and Dad would be like, "What are your best and worst the holiday? Let's write them all down." And we, the kids would all come up with the most, and like playing on the baggage reclaim thing, <laughs> and Dad would go mental because he'd just shown us this amazing kind of Crusader castle in Jordan or something. So yeah, but first memory I think is driving up on those those long weekends to Wales, uh, and then or feeling violently seasick sailing our boat across the channel to France, either of those two. Oh, so you were going across to where in France? I mean, back at, you know, my dad is a very, he's a, he was a sort of workaholic journalist and he took all of his holiday in one go. He took five weeks every summer, which there's no politics that happens in the summer, so he could take the time off. Mm-hmm. And we'd get on this little tiny boat, 37-foot boat, and we would sail. We wouldn't go and meet other people and swim in the sea. Like, we'd just sail as a family it, uh, to incredibly weird places on the west coast of Ireland or the coast of Norway or in France. And I remember, and there were no GPS in those days, right? So old. And dad would be there in heaven, classical music blaring, smoking a pipe, uh, steering through the night with these paper charts sort of blowing around the wind. No, I, I mean, no idea where we were in those days. And then, wow. and then we would just be being violently seasick down below oh, and just crawling around and just wishing we were dead. <laughs> And that's normal. And my wife gets, goes, you have a brutalised, you know, you have no idea. What you, know, you're not arranging any holidays because you're a traumatised human and you, you're <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome. And, but for me, and, and I found adult life very easy 
because nothing is as appalling as those family sailing holidays. Like just lying there being sick with my sisters in a bunk for hours on end. How was that enjoyable for your parents there? I don't think it was. T- and my mum did not enjoy it. But your my dad, dad is passive. My dad had, had, you know, he's having a lovely time because he had that, he was like generation. He just blocked all the kids, didn't sort of feature very highly. So he's sort of <laughs> smoking a pipe, watching the world go by, waves crashing everywhere. Fantastic. And then, and then I just look, look back. I mean, if I tried to do that to my wife and kids now, I'd face, I'd face like full uproar it'd be yeah. like a rebellion yeah absolutely just no chance no even me now actually any any place where i could be seasick is an absolute no no oh, no it's just awful but but i say adult life you know i've done all these i've filmed me for the bbc and i was like oh that was really you know did this and that and i go honestly i mean compared to being a six-year-old in a bunk being sick everywhere and thinking you're gonna die in a storm i mean this is just a piece of cake <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely pleasant <laughs> so chapter two then is the first place that you fell in love with well i think that would be I think it's a big word, isn't it, falling in love? Because I think it implies, I don't think as a kid I fell in love with that, you know, fell in love with a culture and a place. And I think as a, I, I, I took a year off after high school, after our secondary school, and I went to uh, travelling around Africa and all that sort of stuff, backpacking. Mm-hmm. And I got to Zanzibar and it blew my mind. So I didn't really know that there was that East African Arab Islamic culture. I just didn't, hadn't registered as an 18-year-old shockingly um and i just so so the, the combination of kind of middle eastern architecture food religion um and, and people uh, and, and 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 sub-saharan african the fusion was electrifying the the, the spice is on the spice route it just was like a sort of coming of age experience so i was walking through these streets i had a little creaky I'll never forget it. And I had this little, you know, room with these heavy wooden shutters and the old ceiling fan creaking round. And I just felt like a total, I felt, I felt like the rest of my life had started. Wow. This is it. This is the start gun. So uh, at that stage, had it been developed so that there were kind of luxury resorts? No, I don't. Uh, are, they, are they now in Zanzibar? I'm not sure. Oh, I haven't been back so for 20 years. It's very much like a honeymoon des- oh, destination really? now. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised because it's the world's best. I mean, the old town is just the coolest place I've been in my whole life. No, it was absolutely not. There was one very posh hotel in the old town. I remember that, where some Americans were staying, who I met when I was out drinking one night. And then and then we went up to the beachy area at the north of the island, I think. I mm-hmm. haven't been. I haven't really engaged with it since. I was going to you should go back. Well, I, I think. It's, it will probably have changed so much. I, I wonder know. whether you'll think it's for the better. I know. I wonder. Well, I mean, you have to hope that if it's done well, of course, ethical, you know, tourism is a massive industry and hopefully exactly. it, it brings enormous wealth and, and opportunities to people living there. So I hope I hope it is done well, but or unlike a place like, say, Jamaica, where it's like a sort of prison camp um, and you're not quite sure who's in the camp, the tourists or the local people, but it's a bit crap for both, I think. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people are denied access to the beach and the local kids are playing in like the little sewage outlets. Cause only ch- I mean, that's awful. So I hope it hasn't been done like that. But yeah, so, but no, so yeah, I just, and I sort of just thought this was the life I wanted to lead really. And I was kind of exploring and myself and traveling and read, and then I was reading books that were sort of, you know, like I was actually reading The Moors Last Side by Salman Rushdie, uh, and it was all about spice and falling in love and being yeah. you know, having wonderful you know, adventures. And, and I just uh, changed my life, really. And I thought, this is... I want. I like... I just knew I loved being around heritage spaces at that point. I knew that for my mental wellness and for my intellectual curiosity and for my general happiness, I just loved being in there rather than a strip mall in Idaho. That's you know, so and, interesting. So is that what... You know, was that the point where you would say that you fell in love with history as well 
To a point. I think in some ways, yeah. I mean, I'd always done history at school. And I was off to do history at university and stuff. But I mean, as a kind of as kind of into, as a, yeah, as a as a thing to study, I, I enjoyed history. Uh, but that gave me a sense of that you could you could mold you could wrap it all up with a travel a lifestyle like a history lifestyle. And of course, I had no idea I was going to be lucky enough to do what I'm doing now. But that there was a world that were, there was a life that was possible where you could where you could love history and that would actually take you to historical places and and experience and feel them in a way that you couldn't just in a library or or uh, from a textbook. So you've brought history to the masses obviously Dan with your hugely successful history hit podcast and your online history channel as well and these you say feature reports from the weird and wonderful places around the world where history has been made which has been some of the most memorable would you say? Well memorable I in 2018 I went to Timbuktu with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's one of those places that you, no one can... So, so actually, I can't picture it at all. Tell me what it's like. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating you say that. So, and it, and it weirdly, it's what's weird about Timbuktu is it is a sort of imaginary place for people. But that's actually what it's been like for hundreds of years. It was always in the West for some bizarre reason. Maybe the name, maybe the, the stories of gold. It was a... It was a place that featured, loomed very large in imaginations in Western Europe particularly. And so it is a place where famously one, uh, it's in Mali, and one uh, historian in Mali told me that it's a place where the camels met the canoes. So the camels of the North African Berbs coming across the desert, these camel trains across the desert, the Sahara, and entered the sort of West African uh, space so the sort of sub-saharan african very different culture religion stuff like that and it's where that exchange point was made so it got very they got rich right. so it was a place where you know africans would as we would know sub-saharan africans would come north bringing ivory and slaves and gold and things and then they would exchange them for you know the, the produce of of north of of what we now call arab north africa or uh, or of, of western europe so there was this extraordinary place of exchange that grew fabulously wealthy and it was amazing literary tra- university town literary tradition grew up astonishing written tradition there all the scrolls and manuscripts and things that famously are in the news and were saved from destruction by the jihadists and uh, and and it's and, and as a, it's mud mud built mud built mud you know uh, they mix the butter they, there's a beautiful mosque there it's about seven hundred years old which they they because the the buildings are alive because every time it rains they just scoop more mud out and patch them up and and they evolve and wow they're like yeah it's fascinating and they mix butter in with it so the walls are sort of like just you want to touch them and so then they so the, and the town itself is a is astonishing you know some very old obviously a lot of things damaged now and you know in war and and stuff you know bits of stainless stick bits of sort of uh corrugated iron stuff coming in now but you know traditionally mud built mud bricks wood beautiful wooden doors famously very very well known for its kind of wooden doors uh and um it's a yeah it's a wonderful place but it's you know completely now at the moment lawless the the north you know the sort of jihadists that captured much of northern mali were driven out by the french army but same story you've heard so many other places the kind of an effective Mali state has not been built to replace it, so it's just sort of kind of chaotic and anarchic now. But I was able to go there because of the Red Cross. The BBC wouldn't be able to go there. No one would be able to go there. So really, but yeah. So, so what were you doing while you were there? Well, I was. They they did offer to take me, and in, in in return, I you know talked about what they were up to, and then the deal was I could also do some filming and podcasting, and so it was a nice, yeah. really nice combination. And did you feel unsafe? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you do feel unsafe when you're in those kind of war zones. You know, all those those conflict areas, all those I mean, unstable areas. Mm. Uh, you, we had to, you know, you you have to avoid the main road. We had to take all this, you know, back to the. There had been a huge bomb when we landed. Actually, there had been a huge bomb which torn the airport, 
the build terminal building apart uh, a few months before we landed and then and then we had to sort of take all these kind of back routes and drive really really fast and stuff like that and uh, to get and the and the vehicle the Red Cross vehicle was actually um, was actually carjacked and stolen. Uh, the one few, that you were travelling with? Uh, yeah, well, yes, you know, a few months ago. Yeah, no, not the one I was in it, but a few months doing that same route, it was carjacked. But such is the respect for the Red Cross, it was actually returned, hmm. interestingly, because they spend hmm. so much time working, be, st- establishing neutrality. So they, they are talking to these jihadi groups that work with them. And I went to actually a prison in Bamako, it's the capital of Mali, where lots of jihadists in northern uh, sort of from these from these northern territories are imprisoned, and I went there with when they were the Red Cross, and they and they write to their families, they represent them to the, the Malian government, you know, so they have established trust and respect, you know, just one one sort of day at a time. It's amazing the work they do. Uh, what else? My goodness, I had a, yeah, Egypt last year was great. Twenty nineteen was fun. Um, it's always lovely the anniversary stuff. Going to the D Day beach on the anniversary of the seventy fifth anniversary of the, the of the D Day invasion last year, meeting the veterans podcast in a way i mean the great thing and you're learning this and one thing hopefully people at home enjoy about podcasts is the kind of intellectual freedom that people like you are given because you know when you work at radio 4 or bbc you're just just everything's just smashed and ripped and edited and cut and slashed down to nothing so you know we i interviewed the guy Mm. who dropped the torpedo at the bismarck for the one show once and and we we went to his house in scotland to interview him for three hours most amazing man and it's like 20 seconds on the one show that night yeah yeah i mean i used to be a tv producer so i'm very familiar with that feeling your your hit being dropped last minute from a live show totally soul destroying and and you know and actually but when you're out on the dd beach it's just so nice to just give these veterans the airtime that you think they might deserve and the audience kind of agree and you don't have to worry about the big general audience you're not worrying about like when I was at the BBC you're like oh what's got three million people gonna watch this but I don't care no this, this is for people who are listening to this pod who in this your case they love travel in my case they just really really like history and they're prepared yeah. to kind of go with it and listen to these old guys and if some of the stories take a while to get done you don't have to worry about it yeah they love it they get they get involved yeah. so chapter three then is the trip where you learnt the most about yourself I mean, I've been a lot. You do a lot of self-learning <laughs> when you travel, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and funnily enough, it's never—it's not like an A level. It's never like I've done the module. I've <laughs> learned about myself. Partly because ever evolving. Ever, partly because we're always changing, and partly because there's a lot to learn. And I'm a different human to the one I was 20 years ago. So you do have to learn that. Like I'm now learning when I climb up a huge mountain that I have to give myself slightly more time than I did when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's a learning, an unpleasant learning. I think though, it would be. Again, that kind of formative period, 18, 19, I went out and univer- in the summers at university, I'd go out and work in the west of Canada in, in a mountain in a mountain lodge. Oh, interesting. Where in Canada? In uh, the Rocky Mountains, a place called Assiniboine Provincial Park. If you're ever lucky enough to go there, it's the world's most beautiful place. I took my wife back there and proposed to her when we were going out. Oh, It's my favourite place on earth, yeah. But for some reason, it's not famous. Like, it's not like, you know, it looks like Lake Louise and... and uh, what the other ones? Uh, Lake Louise and Banff and Banff, yeah, uh, um, so, yeah, Jasper. There's some of those kind of famous backcountry lodges where you go and you do the hiking, stay in the lake is cerulean blue, fantastic. And you never see Mount Cinnabon on that list. It's just outside Canmore. It's maybe less fashionable. The lodge is a bit more rustic. When I was there, there was no running hot water and stuff, but it's beautiful food and, and it's a bit like cozy and just they got it absolutely right. It's now a little bit more um, jazzy, I think, uh, and that is. Uh, you know, I, I lived up there for three months up in, uh, you know, 
above the tree line in in alpine meadows with spray of wildflowers there mm. and with a bunch of other canadian 20 year olds amazing and I, what drew you to that well i'm half place. canadian my mum's oh, canadian right. so i had the passport so i mm-hmm. thought well if i'm gonna do a summer job might as well make it a really you know try and have fun and not just work in a, a shop in london like all my mates did so i went and did that and made lots of money and tips and I was chambermaiding and then uh, prep chefing in the kitchen and doing a little bit of guiding helping out the guiding and stuff and then in the afternoon when we finished our work about midday we could just go and spend the whole afternoon in the mountains and it's like we just went there was no like telly or downtime so we all immediately like rushed from the kitchen having done prep the dinner that night and then we'd all just throw on our hiking boots and then just hike, like hike up into the mountains and walk across glaciers and find out little, go and look at caves and try and sp- spot grizzly bears chasing ground squirrels. And mm. with all these like super cool Canadians and, and they taught me, you know, I, I'm a lot of my kind of, I don't know, views on life and music and social views are all there. And I met my sort of first lesbian friend who, you know, she had a partner up there working together, you know, all this kind of stuff that, maybe I hadn't had exposure to uh, growing up in southwest London a kind of suburb um just yeah it changed my life and and it was yeah and I, I I try not to be a pushy dad but I would love my kids to go and do some of that as well but yeah would you ever live in Canada do you um the older I get no I've be- I'm like a salmon I'm like a demon I'm like Lyra's demon changing in northern lights I've changed mm-hmm. I used to change shape all the time and I would have been mm-hmm. happy to live anywhere and now my shape is set mm-hmm. and I love where I live Mm-hmm. I, I, it's now just ingrained I love this stupid little island we live on with its crazy politics and its mad views on things and I, I love its crap weather I don't mind and I, I drive down I love London this city we're sitting in now where I was born and I'm lucky enough now to live in the New Forest and I drive down get the train usually and get back to where I live and there's a howling southwesterly gale blowing and the, the oak trees, and the, and, the, and I know what time of the year, year it is just by looking at the, what's growing and what's out and what birds are around. And I think I couldn't live anywhere else. Mm. New Forest is so beautiful. Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. But also, Tuscany's nicer. California's nicer. Yeah, Lost yeah, yeah. are nicer. But I'm done. <laughs> this is me. And yeah. it's just what it is. And actually, I'm at peace with that. In, and I love, obviously, love, love travel. There's a, my favorite expression in the world. It's so annoying. People sort of quote uh, pop psychology, but this is my bit. Is an athe- a nineteenth-century sort of very uh, leading, a sort of early adopter of uh, a sort of might we say psychiatry. He said, "Life is best organized as a series of daring adventures from a secure base." Mm. And that, when I read that, it was mm. electrifying. Yeah, totally true. Like I, I don't. When you go to Mali, when I've been to Syria, and so well, you go to the Congo. It's, it's extraordinary, terrifying, can be life affirming, but only if you've got somewhere safe to go back to and and happy and safe. And I do, and so that is kind of how I've. That's a great philosophy for any traveller. Isn't it the best? Yeah, I love uh, that. Love uh, that. I, I nicked it off the internet, so this is <laughs> you're more than welcome to claim it as. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So chapter four then is your all-time favourite destination, my favourite chapter. This is the hardest chapter for me because everyone wants me to say Petra, Angkor Wat, Pyramids, Valley of the Kings, Terracotta Warriors, whatever it might be. (laughs) And I've I've got a very embarrassing problem, which is I absolutely love Hawaii. <laughs> uh, that's not embarrassing. That's one of the most beautiful places think, in the world. But I just think it's the, I just think it's great. Which island do you like the best? Maui, probably. Maui. It is a wonderful... I, I can, you know, it's a wonderful mix of culture, of, of landscape, of sea, of biodiversity, of volcanoes. But, but also, you know, and this is important accessibility like i i love hiking in nepal or indian himalayas right but it's you come around the corner and there's just like this massive rubbish tier or the path disappears or like this really brutal exploitation by some horrible multinational company of like torn the top of a mountain like mining and it you're like oh that's such a buzzkill yeah it's really and like i don't it's hard to do whereas you know you actually so you want about well some americans um america at its, at its best has got this that access and you know there's nowhere better you go to a national park there and you've got like 
this is it. These are the maps. Go fill your boots, kayak, you know, do the thing. And I, I, it's the most amazing place to get outdoors. Mm. And Britain's caught up a lot, actually. But it's certainly 20, 30 years ago. Oh, it is. Know, the hiking culture, even the in hiking, the US, yeah. it's just part of everyday yeah. life there. And it's excessive. It? You get on yeah. a bus, they drop you off, and you're like, how do I get back from here? Like, oh, we can, every day we pick up from here, and this is the map, and this is what you got to do. And obviously, phones have made it a lot easier. But so, you know, before we all had supercomputers in our pocket and could summon drivers at the click of you know, it was difficult. The countryside was inaccessible, and particularly in Britain, that you had to be a sort of posh bloke who knew it and got used to it. And but in America, I've always found it. In Canada, you just like it is. It's very democratic. It is set up. There are national parks. There are yours, and you can go in there. And I found Hawaii was just brilliantly set up you know if you want to just on a budget just get out into some amazing landscape um without you, know, you can you can do it there i think now that's mm. true of new zealand that's true of lots of places now and actually it's much better in, in the uk did you go to mount kilauea uh, i did not actually next time you go go to Kauai and go to the, the volcano there the active volcano mount kilauea oh yes of course i'd love to do that that yeah, is amazing that. walking over that um kind yeah. of lava field the as you say with hawaii from island to island, yeah. every every island is so different. So different. The big island is so kind of steamy and tropical. Mm, I know, and I know. And, the then the, and then the other thing is that surfing was invented there, which is a reason because it's really easy there. So I got mm. on a surfboard, and surfing is the best thing in the world. And I got on a surfboard on in Oahu, off Honolulu, on a really big longboard. And the guy's like, okay, you just do this. And I did it. I stood up all the way to the shore. And I'm like, oh awesome, my God, because the yeah. break is sweet. And I'm like, I can surf. I never thought I was going to be that guy. And sometimes, and I, I'm sure you'll have it when you're traveling. You know, you had an image when you're in your head when you're a kid. And I used to have a, you remember No Fear, that fashion brand, who I think oh, yeah. may still exist, but I don't use it. I used to have No Fear posters in my room, like, you know, <laughs> beaten paths for beaten men. And there was this guy like skiing off this gnarly thing, all this powder. And then when I finally got the courage up to ski off Peaston's gnarly powder, I remember thinking, I, when I was a kid, I dreamt about being that guy. And it's a reminder that you, if you want something in life, if you want to be something, like, you know, if you want to be a podcast, if you want to be an individual, you know, you want to leave or partly leave mainstream journalism behind and try and stake something out for yourself you can do that like you can achieve that and and that's what travel has kind of taught me and, and i yeah so there's times when you're on a an amazing boat going between islands and hawaii or you're skiing or you're and you're surfing on honolulu you think oh i, I wanted to be that guy and now i'm kind of that guy I'm so yeah. excited. Yeah, yeah, you're realizing a dream. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's real, and it's and actually the best thing, the best thing of all, is it turns out that unlike some Instagram gratification, it is as good as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're surfing in, and and you're like, and it's awesome. Yeah. I thought it was going to be awesome, and it is. And then yeah. you go for a beer on the beach with nice, cool people in Hawaii. Oh. Anyway, so that's my embarrassing secret. I've never really told anyone that. Well, oh, thank you for sharing. Well, I'm feeling better about myself now. Thank you, because you're mm-hmm. the expert. And I'm <laughs> glad to hear you approve on that. How about a favourite city? Well, I was in Amsterdam last year, which I've got to say, I mean, I I mean, I suppose lurking a lot. Maybe it's getting older. What, what is really wonderful about being, uh, many of the things wonderful about being based in Britain, is, you know what? You don't have to ever, if, if someone said to me tomorrow, you ne- you're never allowed to get on a plane ever again. I, I would go, fine, fine, not a problem. By train, boat, car, bicycle, you have got Norway, Ireland, France, Italy, Spain, Germany, Belgium, like Holland, yeah, Denmark. Like, those are the best. Like, I am I'm almost looking forward to being old and crusty and refusing to ever go to an airport again because you could see 
10,000 lifetimes of, of beauty and culture and fun and food and all of those places. So in terms of great cities, i got to say, they don't come better for me than your, your Paris's, your Amsterdam's, your Copenhagen's. I just, you can't get, I can't get enough of them really. Uh, and I certainly prefer them to the, the slightly fashionable mega city propped up by slave labor, Dubai's, sort of Shanghai's, um, Kuala Lumpur's that people quite like with the, with the, with the kind of ultra exotic, you know, high-end tourism. Do you want to swim on a swimming pool on a roof whilst like drinking a Kaiparini? Like, no, not really. I just think it, I, I'm really worried about air pollution. I'm really worried about work, work environmental and, so, and, and workplace standards in these countries. It's grim. Like, I don't want to go mm. up and be served by some really sad-looking Nepalese person in Bahrain, like a giant cocktail. Like, that freaks me out. Yeah. And... Um, and so I, I do think when you go to you go into a place in Amsterdam and you sit you chat to the the wait the server there and she's she's just a cool local person from Amsterdam who lives in a wicked flat around the corner and you're like mm-hmm. yes this is I feel this is kind of ethical and 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 and, and, and the beauty the, the time hallowed kind of beauty the museums which I'm obviously into uh, and so yeah but you need one if you need one answer. Just because I was there recently, I probably will go with the, I will go with Amsterdam. Probably we're on such the same wavelength. It's my favourite city. To really? Be. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, how could? And now be? you can get there on the Eurostar, even better. Which I did the other day, and it's just beyond cool. So nice. I mean, so quick. Have a quick beer in, in like a beautiful station in London uh, when it was built. Uh, St Pancras was the largest enclosed space on planet Earth. Really, yep. single span that extraordinary arch, and you have it like have a sophisticated beer there in a nice bar. You get on a train, chill out, do some work, do some podcasting, do what you got to do, and then you get off in Amsterdam. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The great thing about Amsterdam is that it's one of those cities where you keep turning street corners and the beauty continues oh, yeah, there are so many cities so where there are pockets I know, but it I know. just is so pervasive it's so real i know and unfortunately the second world war mm. and the industrial revolution and modern planning has done for so many cities around the world and europe but when you when you don't i mean that's what's when you go to a place like those tuscan hilltop villages or uh or you obviously amsterdam or bath in britain it's tough but maybe york or edinburgh you, you just they are so special, mm. and especially the history lover in me. But I think I just think, but everyone like gravitates to those places. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, and you think of what we lost really very recently. You know, we lost so recently. We lost Mandalay. You know, another word like Timbuktu, another word that just stirs up. Imagine, you know, the British burnt Mandalay in the Second World War, yeah. and it was this unimaginable treasure. Uh, we've lost, you know, the cities like the, some of the Middle East is like Cairo and Amman have just been sort of trashed. And anyway, but mm. uh, but and actually, and it's important to say because a lot of people think, oh, it's right for you, you know, develop, you know, it's people need development. But it's really important to say that if you look at rent yields, if you look at where people are happier and wealthier, it is actually in heritage spaces. So mm-hmm. we we are we were wrong to smash up uh, medieval winding streets because it turns out that young funky people like your generation want to live and work in those places. Mm. And that's where the interesting business is being started up. It's where, and, and, and that's where office space costs more, accommodation space. So actually there is a clear economic benefit as well as a kind of arty-farty cultural and historic benefit as well. So, mm-hmm. so you, I'm, you've got to be really muscular about preserving that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Are you a hotel guy? 
I was never a hotel guy, and I'm getting a bit soft in my old age. And my wife's like a bit of a hotel person, so I'm getting kind of into it. Annoyingly, I've never. Th- I've always wanted. To, I used to just love sleeping on the floor somewhere. But so, I read that you said that once in an interview, and I thought, can is that really? Did you really yeah. love sleeping on the floor? Yeah, I just did. I, I did again. I think it's probably partly the um, secure base thing. Because I was always very privileged. I had a lovely, cozy place to come back to. Mm-hmm. And in my 20s, I lived in a little flat in Earl's Court with all my mates. And wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, going on away, I was always thrilled to sleep, on, sleep anywhere, on the floor, on trains. It was great. So, <laughs> so and, and now I have to say, my wife will laugh, which is, is I do now realise that holidays are supposed to be a time to sort of slightly recharge. Yeah. I've always seen them. Growing up, there was a sort of, you, me and my sisters used to go back to school to chill out. We used to <laughs> absolutely love term time fantastic but now so there is something nice you know i went to india a couple of years ago and we went to stay in a few of those oberoi hotels Mm -hmm. i mean the one in uh, jaipur the oberoi in jaipur is one of the nicest places i've ever been in my goddamn life really i mean i just lay there and sort of surrounded by bougainvillea and just birds cheeping and and just the richness of indian culture kind of or a version of it, obviously, uh, surrounded by that. And I just thought, this is pretty close to paradise. Yeah. So, so is that your most memorable hotel you stay, know, I would think, you say? Funnily enough, it is actually. I was very, uh, It was a very stressful time at work. I just started this podcast and this history channel. I, I think I was filming out there and my wife came to join me. Or there was some reason that I was there. Anyway, and we just went there. And I had the weight of the world sort of lifted from my shoulders. And I thought, this is just amazing, eating the Indian food and stuff. And then... And then little, yeah, adventures with the kids. And the kids were just old enough. I, start, I took them to, I, it was the first time I'd ever taken the kids to a, sort of a country which, which was, you know, where it was really fundamentally different to the one they'd grown up in. And mm-hmm. they were sort of eyes opened. And, and uh, so that was one of the great trips. And I've got to say that hotel was really nice. So what is your hidden gem, Dan? Chapter five. I've traveled to so many places, it's very hard to pick a hidden gem. I, I, and also what, to, like for what? For chilling, like going to, like obviously... There are islands that I've sailed to off the coast of Thailand, um, which are just sort of heavenly. Uh, but then it feels like a hidden. Uh, oh God! And does it have to be like literally one place, or is it a country, or whatever? whatever you want it to be? A place that people that isn't on people's radar that you thought was yeah. amazing that maybe they should discover themselves. Well, so I, I don't really know what's hidden. I mean, I, I would definitely say Iceland is, is a sort of hidden gem, but maybe it's not that hidden. Everyone wants to go to Iceland, and it is absolutely as good as the uh, the PR suggests. Um, did you go to any parts of rural Iceland? Yeah, yeah. We did. A, we were making a program about the Vikings, so we were traveling all over the shop looking at Viking archaeology and speeding around on boats around the coast. And just, it is astonishing. Watching the Northern Lights in a hot spring, drinking beer, it's just heavenly. I'm mean, a big fan of the, all the Scandinavian countries. I mean, it's funny that to me, the Brits, the Brits, I don't know where most of your listeners are in the world, but if they're British, you know, they, they all fly off to New Zealand the whole time and they've been all over the place, Greece, Egypt. But I mean, so few of them have been to the Scandinavian countries. I mean, Sweden, Finland, Norway. I mean, expensive, but like astonishing. And culturally, like it's scary. You feel like you're in, you feel like you're at home. Um, mm. uh, but so they're sort of, they're, yeah. So, so, oh, I guess the Stockholm archipelago, Stockholm and its archipelago would be a hidden gem. Oh, I've heard that's so beautiful. Got to check. Prob- that's probably the most underrated place I've been in my life. Like, I, I don't understand why everyone doesn't go there the whole time. So, if you were to put that on your, make that a travel plan for next year, what would you suggest that someone does if they want to experience the beauty of the Stockholm archipelago? I would I would go to Stockholm. 
I would check out what is what is a like like Amsterdam and Copenhagen, one of the world, one of Europe's great cities. Yeah, it's got the single greatest museum on planet Earth in it, the Vasa Museum, with a 17th century battleship capsized about 30 seconds after leaving port on its maiden voyage, and because of the cold Baltic Sea, it's perfectly preserved. It Amazing. is like it is nuts. It's like the Goonies. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and then you from there you you go out on a boat. Uh, either one yourself or one of the many boats that Beatles about and you just go to one of the islands and there's islands from an island the size of a rock with a little sauna built on it by whom you don't know and there's a little stack of firewood outside and you just replenish the firewood when you leave and have a sauna jump in the jump in the Baltic mm-hmm. to bigger islands with hotels and restaurants and, and things on them but I mean it's just the best that it is it's thousands of islands thousands of islands and uh, it is it is the people are amazing. The food is amazing. The weather is amazing. It's got it all. But I've got another little, really unfashionable uh, hidden gem, which is actually just you know the UK. It's it's explore the explore where you're from. Yeah. One of the great. Everyone always wants me to talk about Angkor Wat and pyramids, or whatever. But the one of the great the great blessings I've had is exploring this country right from top to toe. I mean, I've spent tons of time in Northumberland and and Lancashire. You know, the weird and wonderful corners of this country you get to go to you know mackerel fishing museums and things so mm. and a lot of and a lot of tourism into britain like i mean that tourism like mainstream is t- it's tough they land in london they take in a show they in one day i as i understand it you, there's a coach will pick you up and you will do stonehenge yeah. look windsor castle stonehenge bath in one day in a day wow. and because i went and filmed in bath and they were like we get to, we have a nightmare here because our visitors are furious. They're late. They've been they're not you know they they've had a they're slightly disappointed by Stonehenge anyway. And then they've just been in traffic and they arrived. They're grumpy. So Bath Bath is like yay Roman Bath and and they have a real issue. And I just think that just sounds so grim. So if you're listening to this abroad and you're coming to the UK, don't fly into London. Ignore, I wouldn't maybe not even go to London. Go to like York, Newcastle, Durham, uh, Hadrian's Wall. Uh, there's villages up there, the Yorkshire Moors, and then fly out of Edinburgh, and you will check out the borders. That is a hidden, that is a hidden hidden gem, and more. I bet more Londoners have been to New Zealand than have been to that part of the country. Mm, very very true. Great hidden gems. So in contrast, then Chapter Six is the place that you would never go back to. I don't want to get all political, but I do find China problematic at the moment. You know, with its issues around Hong Kong and the way it's treating the Uyghurs in the Western country. And so I think ethically I'm struggling now to kind of go to China at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not in a hurry to go back to the places where I've been scared to death in war zones, you know, making TV shows like Congo and Syria. Syria is obviously one of the world's most beautiful, well, both of those two of the world's most beautiful countries. But uh, I had... I had experiences there that make me, don't, make me nervous about going back. Amazing how Syria was an up-and-coming tourist destination until very recently. I mean, it was the big thing. It was the thing to do in the late 2000s, before the Arab Spring. Yeah. With people really discovering it. I mean, it was a a secular country Mm. uh, where... And the history, I imagine. uh, With unparalleled history. Very accessible. Um, And do you know how much of that remains? Well... It's been devastated, but the some of the big ticket stuff, like Damascus, the old city, Damascus is okay, which is a base to rebuild from, definitely. Some of the Crusader castles have been damaged, but not uh, oh, well, not obliterated. Like Aleppo's, you know, Aleppo has been obliterated, which is tra- um, an unimaginable tragedy. And some of the and a lot of looting goes on. The trouble is, once the government and we saw in Egypt as well now with Google Earth and various things, mm. 
uh, you are able looting is a massive issue of these archaeological sites. I see, so yeah. the, the JCBs go in the minute the government, the police, kind of are otherwise engaged. So it's a big mm. problem. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, where would I? I think a very few places I'd never go back to. I'm trying to think now. Uh, do you know what the the uh, the the, uh, the I'm I'm falling out of love with I, I loved America, I loved America, and I'm falling out of love now with the uniform like totally anodyne strip malls same brand same f- terrible food uh I, I'm, I'm definitely i'm the, that, the sort of the classic midwest road trip like i'm i no longer yearn to do that you know i don't when you're young the you know culturally you're like so desperate to get in a car and drive across the states and everything yeah, and now i'm like actually that. i obviously there's unbelievably wonderful place in the states but i, I, I i'm you know going, going to houston and just that kind of carmageddon concrete totally lack of individuality i mean of course then you go to san antonio and you go to kansas city and you go to new york and san francisco and you see all the opposite amazing you know wonderful but i think i might be done with some of those big midwest cities Mm. for the moment Mm. as you as you mentioned earlier you know get to zion national park get to monument valley and new england i mean when you i went to new england i felt new england is like england but just better i just it is just the best and and when i was 18 i i could have there was a point at which i thought i might go to university there and if i'd gone i'd I'd be there i'd be mr like massachusetts now i think i'd be wearing my car keys and uh, supporting the patriots and everything and Mm -hmm. talking about the red sox the whole time because it's just heaven up there yeah so chapter seven dan is your next big adventure so i'm off in a few weeks time to St. Helena in the little island in the Atlantic. Oh, wow. Yeah. That So tell everyone a bit about... So St. Helena is a little scrap of land in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, just south of the equator. I think it's just south of the equator. One of the most remote places in the world. One of the most remote places on Earth, discovered, quote-unquote, uh, by Europeans, Portuguese, as they as they pushed ever further into uh, into the Indian Ocean. On the way to the Indian Ocean, they discovered it. It was owned by the Portuguese, and then by the Dutch, and then by the Brits. It's off the coast of South Africa, Off is the it? coast, yeah, of Southern, sort of Southern Africa. Southern it's Africa, way, yeah. Basically in the, mid, sort of in the middle of the between Brazil and West Africa, you know, kind of. I everywhere. mean, extraordinary. And it's a bit famous because it was a useful island that you'd stop off and you'd get some supplies and re- put some coal on board if you a steamship and then head off to around to Cape Town and beyond. And it came to prominence, it's remembered, because it's the place that the British sent Napoleon Bonaparte off he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. In 1814, Napoleon had been exiled to Elba, a small island off Italy, and he'd escaped when the British, when his British sort of guard was off visiting his girlfriend on the mainland in Italy. Napoleon escaped, captured France back, and fought the Battle of Waterloo. He was defeated again. This time the Brits were not going to make the same mistake, and they sent him to the most remote place they could think of, St Helena, where he died. Where he wrote, a, he wrote, he lived in this house, and I'm off to see his house, and he wrote a biography, autobiography blaming everyone else for his failures mm-hmm. and then he died and then he was exhumed and taken back to Paris where he is now in the Hotel des Invalides which I'm sure many of you have seen uh, and the Brits always used to say that was the biggest mistake we ever made we should never let the French get that body back because they turned him into a sort of saint mm. turned into a cult but they but they did allow him back and and so now you can still visit his grave which has got nothing in it um, and that's that so I'm going to head out there it's very exciting they've just installed a very controversial airport there they've spent lots of money building a runway that they discovered the crosswinds might be too um, too much for planes tolerances so it might it was briefly looking like the most expensive 
unused airport in the world. But I think, I hope planes are landing there now. So, so what will you be doing when you get there? So tell me about the journey, first of all. So you have to fly to Johannesburg. Johannesburg, and it's quite far, though, from Johannesburg, isn't it? Oh, yeah, like, it's yeah. A, yeah, a proper mission from Johannesburg yeah. as well, yeah. So, I'm so going, hopefully you'll land safely. So hopefully land safely. Do I mean as with as with all my little trips? So we're film, filming for my history channel, history at TV, and then doing pods and stuff. But so focus, do the history first, but then because I love outdoor, you know, then then spend the rest of the time co-steering mountains, hiking, whatever, doing the other bits because it's quite a wild, quite wild scrap of land in the middle of the Atlantic. So I don't know. I'll, I'll report back. Yeah, I look forward to hearing I'm about there it very soon. Wow. So we're on to chapter eight, the final chapter, Dan, and that is what's at the top of your bucket list. Well, my bucket list is entirely composed of uh, remote islands. I love sailing. I love boats. I'm obsessed by kind of islands and island life. So there's a few that I want to go to. In fact, there's a lot. But in terms of bucket list, I think it's Sao Tome and Principe, which is in the Bight of Benin, and so that, that big chunk that comes out of West Africa. Uh, and that is uh, apparently astonishing. I, I um, met a member of the British embassy team in Nigeria, and they said that's where... The real the smart cookies go is you get try and get out there because it's just mind blowing. And by the same token, uh, an area that I've never been before, never been to the South Pacific, never from Ooh, from the yeah. from the Easter Island right across. I've been to New Zealand, but from any point east of there, I haven't, haven't been. So, uh, would love to sail in between those islands and Micronesia and all that kind of stuff. That that is just a dream. Mm. Even though you could get seasick. Well, the seasickness, uh, but partly as a result of my brutalised childhood, like that I just got over the seasickness. So oh, I, know, right. I no longer get seasick because it just the, the, my body gave up worrying about it. So <laughs> I owe that favour to my dad. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dan Snow and his travel diaries. All the destinations mentioned by Dan I've included in this episode's show notes. Dan Snow's History Hit is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like that, check out his online history channel, historyhit.tv. Thank you so much for listening today. Across the next couple of weeks, I'm having a Mr. and Mrs. Smith giveaway with some special prizes. Simply leave this podcast a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and send me a screenshot. You can reach me at Holly Rubenstein on Instagram or Twitter. If you've previously left a review, send me that too. Entries will be selected at random and I'll be back in touch if you're a winner. Next week is a mid-season break. I'll be traveling myself to a far-flung location. I'll let you know about that when I get back. And I'll be back the week after with a really fantastic guest that I can't wait to share with you. So have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you soon. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.